Welcome to Meet the Athletes at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, Chief Sports Writer for BBC Sport, Tom Fordyce. Evening everyone, thanks for coming. Now it's not often is it that you get to meet a world champion and it's even rarer that you get to meet an Olympic champion. So to get the chance to chew the fat with a world champion and Olympic champion from the same family it's pretty special, isn't it? So please welcome Alistair and Johnny Brownlee. <laughs> yeah, now, to avoid any Anton Deck identification problems, Johnny, <laughs> Hello. Alistair, okay? Alistair, first things first, what's going on here? Uh, it's just fashion, really, I think. Johnny's a bit boring just wearing two trainers, so I've got to outdo him at everything. So <laughs> no, um, I've got a bit of an injury in my ankle, um, and I've got told if I rest it for a long, long time in this boot, then hopefully it'll get better. So uh, I've done five weeks so far of rest, or relative rest in this boot, and I've got one week left. So I'm praying when I go back to see the doctor next week, it'll be all right. <laughs> and Johnny, what have you been up to? So this is in theory meant to be a period of rest for you the last week, but I hear you've been resting in a, a very brownly way. Uh, we climbed Kilimanjaro, uh, that was our, our rest period, but after the season, racing here in London, uh, we took two weeks off and I did some normal things for a while, I went around London, saw the sights, something I've never ever done before, and then we climbed Kilimanjaro, right to the top. Right first question to has to be, which of you got to the top first? Uh, it was different, actually, I, it, I did actually, that, actually no, I know I did. <laughs> Alistair was in a bit of a uh, bad way at the top though, so I was more pushing him from behind, uh, so he might have actually beat me, but he's close, but he went up. Yeah, in his boot, but it's an incredible experience. Uh, I'm not the kind of person who can sit around um, at home when I'm not doing anything. Um, I have to go out and do things, and Kilimanjaro is a great holiday because uh, you get up in the morning, you maybe walk for four or five hours, and then you sit down and there's nothing you can do. Um, so it's great, I really, really enjoyed it, and it's uh, something, something I've always wanted to do. Uh, and it's good. It's, I, I camped near the top, I camped at 5,800 meters. Uh, I didn't sleep, but I camped there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an amazing trip. Great stuff. Now, just to explain how the evening's going to work, we'll start off with a little chat with the, with the lads and catch up with what else they've been doing this year and, and about their autobiography swim, bike, run. And then we're going to throw it open to you guys to ask whatever questions you want. So you can ask everything, really, from their training to how they got to the top, how they feel about each other. They <laughs> said they're going to answer all sorts of questions. So <laughs> you can ask Johnny about his obsession with Richard III. Yeah, yeah, ask Al about his obsession with romantic comedies. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is on limits. So first of all, Alistair, you come into 2013 as Olympic champion, and then this year hasn't quite worked out as you would have hoped. Yeah, it's been a really, really tough year. Um, I kind of wanted a bit more of a relaxed year after last year, um, 2012. It seems like a long time ago now. But, you know, just to, obviously there was a lot of pressure. It was quite tough at the time, trying to peak for that one race at the Olympics. Um, and you make lots of sacrifices, and sometimes those sacrifices are just not being able to do the races you want to want to do in that time. Um, so this year, I just wanted to race really, go out and do different things, uh, get the chance to race abroad in some new places, run a 10k, those kind of things. And and I was kind of in the process of doing that, and my ankle started hurting. Um, and I kind of had the choice then. I saw some doctors, and they're like, "Yeah, you can rest now for a few weeks uh, in a boot." Before I have to do that, my season's over. So I might as well carry on and see what happens. Um, and I, I kind of managed it through most of the year, um, but I, I knew I was getting a, a bit worse and a bit worse going, going through the year. Um, and by the time it came to London, I knew I was in quite a lot of trouble, really. Um, and I started the race just hoping that I was going to be all right, and I wasn't. It, it, 
the first time ever I didn't want it to be cold because I knew the cold would be really bad um, and it was absolutely freezing um, and struggled through the race and that was it really um, and now I'm just trying to get it better and hopefully <laughs> in a boot yeah no, he's got a boot on. <laughs> yeah exactly now I've got a boot on now Johnny the last thing that a lot of people would have seen of you was the the end to that somewhat epic grand final where you're going neck and neck with Javier Gomez he's just pipped you obviously not only to the race but to become world champion are you over that now uh, is, it still, is it still a source of anguish? It, it's still definitely a sore point because the World Series, it works out. Uh, leading to that race, I've done uh, five other races all, all around the world and uh, to come so close to becoming world champion, but, but so far was tough. And when you, you do a sprint finish like that, you ask yourself, you know, what could I have done differently? Could I have started sprinting a little bit later, a little bit earlier, taking the final corner a little bit differently? And uh, I, I can't change anything, that, like, I can't change it all now, but it, it, it's tough to take when it's so close, but um, he beat me you know, fair and square, and I don't want to get beaten in a spin finish again, because uh, it, it, it's tough to take, but um, you've got to just get over it, really. Um, now, one judge who's not sitting that far <laughs> away from you described, described you as an absolute numpty on the BBC for your tactics. Ta tactical numpty. A tactical, I'm sorry, a tactical numpty. Do you yeah. stick with that uh, comment, Al, of you? Of course he will. He's yeah. going to stick with it, isn't he? <laughs> he never He's already down. admitted he did it wrong, so I, I was right. But <laughs> last time we had a sprint finish, uh, I beat him. So, uh, but yeah, I, mean, I think I was. Tactically, I wasn't the best. Because uh, Javier Gomez is one of those guys... That's his way of saying I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Javier Gomez is one of those guys who... Um, he's a bit of a diesel engine. He's known for not having the best uh, sprint finish. So, and I should be quicker than him over the last 50 metres or so. But I started sprinting uh, maybe 200 metres out, which gave him the chance to, to come round me. Um, but when you, you've, you've raced for an hour and 50 minutes and you're not thinking straight, uh, it, you know, it's hard to get your tactics perfectly. Uh, but it wasn't the best. And... Yeah, Alistair told me many times that uh, I've lost the World Championship because yeah, I'm a tactical numpty. <laughs> <laughs> Brotherly love. Now, Alistair, uh, earlier this year you released your autobiography, Swim, Bike, Run. Why now? Um, there was a few reasons why. Um, we wrote it at the time, going through that Olympic year, 2012. We started in January of that year and wrote very much of it as the time as we went along. So, you know, as we were doing our winter training in January, as I picked up an injury in February, we, you know, all that time we sat down and, and wrote it and then literally to a few weeks before the Olympics and a few weeks afterwards. So, you know, we kind of captured it at the time, at the, at the time that we thought would be kind of the most interesting period between us, our relationship, um, and interesting in terms of what was going on in terms of the Olympics and stuff. So that was a big reason for doing it then. Um, but obviously it covers our entire childhood, how we got into triathlon, what, what made us get into triathlon, all those kind of things. So, um, and I, I guess it also coincided with us getting asked about you know about us a lot um, lots of questions and when you get asked for an interview so you never quite get to give the answer you want to give and a book kind of allows you to do that I think it allows you to talk and give the answers that you'd want to give normally so well, hopefully we managed to get that across. <laughs> now I'm slightly biased here because I did help the lads um, with the book a little bit <laughs> mainly just spelling long words things like that um, but one thing that struck me as we were doing it was was how honest they were so if you're if you're ghosting a book you, you really need someone to um, to open up and both of them were very, very honest. And Johnny, you were particularly talking about that period before the Olympics when Alistair was injured. You were living in the same house. You were very, very honest about the stress that put on your relationship. Yeah, I remember that. We were, we were talking over fish and chips then, weren't we? I remember <laughs> being very honest. But yeah, um, yeah uh, leading, leading to the Olympics was a tough time for both of us. Uh, I, I, Alistair got injured um, uh, uh, about six months before the Olympics. And when you get injured, uh, you blame everyone around you. 
a lot of time, and I happened to be around Alistair at the time. And it was, it was a very tough time for him because obviously this Olympic event had been talked about for, for years and years, and Alistair wanted the perfect run into the Olympics. You know, your dream of your training going perfectly, and it didn't for Alistair. You know, six months before Olympics, he, I mean, he couldn't even run a stride. He couldn't even run for for ten seconds. Um, so I and I was at the same time. I was going out training, and that's the training that, that Alistair's taught me to do. That I've I've learned how to train f from him. Um, so he saw me go out the door. Um, and do the training that he wanted to do and he loves to do. So he blamed me for a lot of things. Um, I, I couldn't do anything right at them times. Uh, whether it was, I, I, I'd come out for a bike ride and be just, just in a mood with me for no reason. Uh, and I tried to avoid him, but it's tough, you know. We, we shared a house full of Olympics. It was a small house and there was no escape. And it was, it was a tough time for both of us, uh, but it all went well um, in the end, so uh, it was okay. Okay, well that's enough questions for me. I know these two <laughs> quite well, but um, you guys don't. So. Um, Let's have some questions from you guys. Hi, Craig Pollard. Uh, questions for both of you. So first of all, congratulations to fellow Yorkshiremen being top of the world. That's <laughs> great news for uh, County of God's country. Um, the question, though, is when you get into the real hurt miles and you're in that final ending to a race, how do you dig deep and find that extra motivation to keep going? What's the, the mental strategies that you employ to kind of find that extra tenth of a 1% that's the difference that makes the difference? I don't think you're always necessarily thinking about how much it's hurting. You're not thinking, oh... This is hurting so much. I'm, you know, I'm trying to push on. I'm trying to hold on. You're thinking more about the race. You're thinking, you know, how long have I got left? Um, how can I get to the next corner? And breaking it down a little bit. But hopefully, you're just involved in the race. You know, you're running next to um, Javier Gomez, thinking, you know, what do I need to do to beat him? Shall I leave it to another hundred meters? Shall I leave it another hundred meters? Uh, how should I kind of break the race up like that? So that's the kind of perfect thing. You know, you want to be really so involved in the race. You're not thinking about the kind of pain you're going through. Um, in the occasions where it is just painful, um, like I did a race in Stockholm this year where I was just running. I started the run 20 seconds in front of the people, <laughs> Johnny and Gomez behind me, and finished 20 seconds in front of them. And that was just a horrible situation to be in because you don't know how far, they're, far they are behind you. They can see you all the way and they're chasing you, and all you can do is run as fast as you can. And that, you know, that was, you know, I was just running as hard as I could all the way, thinking how much it, it was hurting and how miserable the experience it was. But they're, they're rare events, I think. Yeah, uh, perfect. Break it down is a big thing for me. You know, that's a massive thing. When I start a 10K race, I never think it's, it's a 10K run. Um, I normally run the first K and then tell myself I can't run any faster than that. And after that K, I'm going to have to stop. But then before I get to that K mark, I'll set another goal. Um, and like Elsa says, it's massively, you, you don't really think about it. We've, we've taught to race now, yeah, I've raced against Alice since, since I was so young. Um, and when I'm in the race, I do everything, yes, yeah, I'm to try and win the race. I don't, um, I don't normally think about the pain. Do you find, Johnny, in, in, that, um, in that moment of, of the race, that it's very hard to remember how much it hurts afterwards, even sort of 10, 20 minutes later when you look back, it's hard to remember the intensity of the pain? Yeah, as soon as you finish, you don't think about the pain. Uh, you always think, oh, that was nice and easy. Um, or that was you know, quite hard, but not so hard. You never, ever remember when you're doing that. Sometimes I've, I've been in races thinking, you know, why do I do this to myself sometimes? <laughs> this is the final race of the season, and I'm not doing this after this point. And then you know, two weeks later, I'm back racing again. <laughs> uh, you do completely forget that. And that's a good thing, because sometimes it does hurt. Um, and you, you, know, you don't want to think about that. And it's like training sessions as well. You know, on a Tuesday night on the track, I'll turn up and I'll do a really hard track session. And I won't think about it um, anymore. I'll go home, that's it. It might have hurt at the time for, for, for five minutes, ten minutes, but then I don't think about it. Okay, next question. 
Here we go over there. Question for you both, and uh, my name's Menel. Uh, I just want to say, like, how much does your diet like impact on your training? I mean, how do you work around that? Do you have a nutritionist, or do you have somebody who's always coaching you to eat properly and when to eat? Uh, yeah, diet's quite important. Um, we have nutritionists that we can access, but we don't really have someone who you know tells us exactly what to eat all day, every day. Um, the actual nutrition that we do it tends to be more performance nutrition, so what you eat in the run-up to a race and what you ingest during the race, how much fluid, how much carbohydrates and salts in that fluid, gels, all those kind of things. Um, but as far as every day is concerned, we just try and eat very normal, healthy, balanced diets, uh, probably eat a bit more than most people because we're doing lots of exercise um, and just try and eat slightly differently. So trying to, I try and eat a lot of protein because I think protein is very important. Uh, we drink quite a lot of kind of milk and recovery kind of drinks. Um, they're very important after training uh, for a few reasons. So, but apart from that, eat very, very normal diets. I think you'd probably notice the volume most of all if you were having a meal with the brown boys. <laughs> <laughs> Starters, main courses, <laughs> sticky toffee puddings. <laughs> and speed of eating as well. Yeah. We tend to eat very quick. I'm not really sure why, but um, it's a race, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, we, we tend to eat very quick. Okay, next question. Hi there, Mark Davis. Um, first of all, congratulations on your Olympic achievements and everything you've done for the sport. I've got two questions, if I may. One's very easy. One is, how quick can you both run 10K on a track at your best? I'd love to know that. And also, as a marathon runner who can't really swim very well, I've just entered my first triathlon next year. What tips can you give me as somebody who can't really swim very well who can, who can actually run okay? Okay. okay, 10K first. Oh, 10K. Uh, at the Olympics here, off the bike, I probably ran 29.30. So maybe at my fittest, 28.40, something like that. Um, maybe a little bit faster. I like to be a little bit faster. Alistair ran 28.30, so maybe just faster than that <laughs> would, be, would be very good. <laughs> uh, so your, your time, Al, in London, a comparison a lot of people made, was about 90 seconds slower than... Mo Farah's winning time in the 10,000 metres, wasn't it? Although that's yeah. not really a fair comparison, is it? Yeah, well, it's 29.07 the time in London, um, and apparently it was over an accurate course, which you're never quite sure about in triathlon because <laughs> it's not very often accurate. Um, but I'd I'm telling myself it's long. Mm. And, um, and, yeah, it's different. Uh, you know, you say the track's slightly faster, and obviously you're doing it off the bike and stuff. But then again, Mo, you know, that 27.30 he ran, he can run under 27 minutes, so it's still quite a big gap. Um, in terms of times, I could run fresh. I've run, I ran 28.32 on the track this year, but I'd like to go a bit faster. I'd, I'd love to go under 28 minutes. That'd be, you know, as a lifetime ambition to run, but who knows? We'll see. Will uh, you have a go at the Commonwealth Games, do you think, next year? Yeah, I want to. Um, it's difficult because with, with the World Series in triathlon and obviously doing Commonwealth triathlon is my priority. It's difficult to fit things in, but I really want to have a go at it. Um, run the qualifier and trial and just see what time I can run. Not even necessarily to run the Commonwealth Games. I just want to see how fast <laughs> I can run and train for it as well. I think, I think it's good for my triathlon and could have a slightly different goal. Um, yeah, so we'll see. But it's de running 10Ks on the track is not very good for you, I don't think. It's really tough on, the, on your body. And At swimming as well, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, find a coach is the best advice. Yeah, coach in a group. Because swimming's all about technique. Um, you know, a body's pushing in the water, you want to swim as high as you can. Uh, and you need a coach to tell you that because you could go to your local pool and go up and down as many times as you want and get as fit as you want. But if you haven't got the technique sorted, it's very, very hard. So a couple of sessions with a coach can make a massive difference. And wear a wetsuit as well. <laughs> if you wear a wetsuit, it makes you a lot more buoyant. <laughs> and it's cheating, really, so wear a wetsuit. <laughs> okay, next question. Yeah, hi, guys. Um, my name's Mark. Um, 
equally like everyone else, I just want to say congratulations. Great job um, at the uh, Olympics. Um, actually, when I came along to this, I could think of literally billions of questions to ask you guys. Um, uh -huh. I think genuinely the first one was, can I race you guys at some point? Because that was just the first thing that's right uh -huh. to my mind. Um, and well, also, you can actually, if there's no brownie <laughs> triathlon coming up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, like, whether you guys ever attempted to trip each other up on a, a race at any point. Um, but on a serious note, um, what I did wonder was um, whether, from your perspective, do you think things, sporting events like, say, the Olympics or, say, um, the World Cup should be used as um, a forum for influencing society at all? Um, first one, I think, yeah, you can race us. Hmm. We have our own triathlon for the Brownie Triathlon that we had this year and hopefully having two next year. So uh, hopefully that. Um, no, I don't think we ever tripped us up each other up, have we? Uh, I certainly never tripped him up. Maybe he tripped me you up. Took, you took know. Johnny's bike once, didn't you? Yeah, in a French Grand oh, Prix yeah. once. Yeah. Uh, in a mate in France, yeah. Alistair jumped to my bike. He got, he got out of the swim. Must have been just in front of me. It can't be that far in front. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I remember getting on my bike and thinking, these shoes are a bit big. Uh, this saddle's a bit high. Uh, and then I was like, he's got my bike. <laughs> Alistair's got my bike. And then I shouted a, a few swear words. You know, <laughs> what are you doing on my bike? Um, so that was the handlebars a bit loose as well in classic Alistair fashion. <laughs> yeah, because because Alistair doesn't isn't the best organised person. He doesn't really you know look after his kit that well sometimes. Well, she'd broken them on the way round. <laughs> Whereas I like to, I'm the kind of guy before a race who's the one in transition, making sure every screw is as tight as it can be. Um, so I jumped on a bike and the handlebars fell down as well. <laughs> so I was like, I've got the wrong shoes. I've got the wrong size bike, and my handlebars don't even work. Um, so yeah, that was Alistair's fault. Only in swims as well. When we start next to each other, um, open water's a, li a little bit of a fight sometimes, you know, people hit each other back. So, and Alistair, I've definitely got dunked by someone, you know, pushed under water, got hit. I looked and gone, who's that? I'm going, oh, it's Alistair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've, I've never hit him in the swim, so I don't know how he, he does, does it to me. all the time. And the last question, sporting events. Um, absolutely. I don't think it's a choice whether they are or they aren't. I think they just are. You know, I think the Olympics is dressed up so much as a as a, an event to try and encourage people to get into sport and we talk about legacy so much and all those kind of things but I think whether we talked about that or not I think it is and it is you know the Olympics is there people are going to watch it whatever it is people are hopefully going to be inspired by it and people are going to enjoy watching it and that's hopefully going to inspire people to do those sports um, and I think the only example we can really use is triathlon and it's been incredible you know the the change in the last year has been absolutely amazing from a, a sport really that well a few years ago that people didn't necessarily know what it was to a sport that only crazy people did to now kind of you know not a mainstream sport but most people around know what it is and most people know that it's a accessible sport that almost anyone can have a go at and I think that's a that's a massive change that we've seen brought about almost solely by this Olympics so yeah I think it is it can have a big big effect okay next question gents uh, my name's Rich uh, again this is for the both of you you're clearly the masters of the Olympic distance race now would either of you consider doing a middle or a longer distance, say a half or a full Ironman? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I thought about it, but not for a while yet. Uh, you know, the Rio 2016 is a, a massive aim for me. But then after Rio, uh, maybe, maybe then, in Rio I'll be 26 years old. So that's a good time to start going into long distance. Um, but maybe I can, I can race in 2020 as well, if, I, if I'm not too slow by then. Uh, but definitely, it's a, it's a part of the sport that I... I grew up watching and I still watch now and it's, uh, it's, kinda, it's, it's great to watch. It's, it's so hard and it's a challenge. And I, I like that side of the sport that it's just 
you know, such, such a hard event to do, to compete um, over seven and a half hours, eight hours is, is incredible. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I want to have a go at Ironman uh, someday. I'm not sure when, but probably after, after the next Olympics, I think. Uh, we're ready to have a change of something else to have a go at. And, yeah, like Johnny, you know, we've... Uh, been brought up following triathlon for me really young and you know Ironman is one of those things especially the world champs that's you know, massive in triathlon so yeah I definitely want to have a go. And you've lived with a decent Ironman competitor as well haven't you Phil Graves? <laughs> yeah we have yeah um, Phil Graves is what's his claim to fame oh, the world's youngest, youngest ever Ironman winner um, and he's never done anything since so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no he's great we lived with him for a while and um, He's he's great to train with, and yeah, he's taught us quite a lot about Ironman. Although I thought I, I think we taught him a lot more about training. <laughs> so, <laughs> next question. Hi, uh, James Norman. I've got two questions. Uh, one for each of you, Alistair. Um, when you're doing the the start of the swim, how do you cope with that tussle, and how do you keep calm and sort of measure your stroke and pull through? He just beats everyone up. <laughs> <laughs> and Johnny, um, how easy have you found it when you've been you said that you learnt your training from Alistair. Mm. When you find bits of his training you don't like, how easy do you find it to disown those and sort of fashion your own training regime? Can't. Okay, Alistair, <laughs> do, you want, do you want to answer okay. that? Yeah, you yeah, answer your um, question first about the swim. I used to, I very much used to have like an attitude of, right, I'll dive in, I'll have my own bit of space. If anyone touches me, you know, as long as no one touches me, it'll be all right. But if anyone touches me, you know, I'll I'll give him some trouble. But now, if anyone comes anywhere near me, I just nail them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's it's tight. Yeah, and you've got to kind of fight for your own bit of space. You know, and it's really really difficult to swim when you're fighting. So you want to fight for the minimum amount of time. You want to get out of that mess, and you want to just be able to swim in clear water. Um, and neither of us are really very fast over the first hundred meters or so. So we never actually get clear. Um, so you know, we tend to fight a lot till the first boy. And we just have to hope that we get to the first boy in a half-decent position. And after that, you can really use the next two or 300 metres to move up because people tend to go really, really hard for the first 200, 250 metres to that first boy. And then there's a real lull in the race. And then we can use that to move round people. Um, and hopefully we can. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm in a bit of trouble. Alice, I'm sure there's a lot of people here who've, who've done triathlons and have experienced the madness of, a, of an open water start of an open water swim. What advice would you, gi would you give them about dealing with that first the insanity of the first few minutes when you feel like you're in a washing machine. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important, obviously, you know, obviously you're swimming hard, you want to start hard, but you definitely don't want to start too hard because it's very easy to, to be in a lot of, you know, lactic debt and struggle after those first three or four minutes. So pacing is very, very important. That's the first one. Um, I think the second one is just stay relaxed and stay calm. You know, if you're getting a bit of a tussle, some, just try and move away. And if you can't move away, sometimes it's even worth slowing down. You know, sometimes I slow right down and go around the other way of someone. Um, so that's very important. Um, be able to breathe to both sides. You know, sometimes if you're breathing to your right and so, you know it's wavy to that side because someone's very close, start breathing to your left. Uh, that's good. Um, and always keep an eye on where you're going as well because that's important. You don't want to end up miles off, off course, um, and just because someone else is taking it off course. So yeah, I think that's important as well. Okay, Johnny. Well, your question there about uh, adopting bits of Al's training and not liking some of it. I know it has been a source of some. Uh, contention between the two of you that Al thinks that you just copy his training <laughs> yeah well, that, that's a massive thing I think the problem is, is I haven't adopted my own training uh, because Alistair the older brother uh, the more the more confident one the one who you know would go out for massive rides when coaches told him not to you know when he was 14 years old and going out for four hour rides and the coach is like you're 14 years old you shouldn't be riding that far 
he was the one who went, no, I'm going for it. So I'm the one who's kind of followed behind and, and, and copied that. I never really formulated my own training. And that's something that I think if I'm going to make the step over the next few years, I need to find out what training suits me. Because Alistair's developed himself what training suits him just by trial and error. Whereas I've just followed him behind and then kind of copied his training. Um, Which so makes logical sense to a certain point, doesn't it? Because, say for example, Alistair's running through the Meanwood Valley in in Leeds, it makes no sense you running through Headingley, you know, there will be a logic behind a lot of his training, it yeah. also makes sense for you. Yeah, well, a lot of it's logical, like you say, if Alistair's going for a run, then I might as well, you know, go with him, and if, he, if he's going to run for 70 minutes, then there's no point in me going out for longer or shorter, uh, you might as well go together, um, then our hard sessions as well, there's no point training separately, you might as well do it together, um, but it's something that definitely I'm, I'm going to have to think about over the next few years, is, is coming, up, coming up with my own training, and seeing what works for me. Uh, have you trained less together because you moved out of Alistair's house uh, we have a little while ago do you train less together now or slightly slightly uh, less well since uh, I moved out we do a lot of our easy training separately um, you know it, it runs where there's no point meeting up for, for 30 or 40 minutes we do that separately but uh, last year was a strange year because Alistair was injured for pretty much all the time uh, and I was injured for the first few months so in the whole of 2013 I think we did about two hard run sessions together um, which is, which is un completely unheard of for us because we, we normally lead into the Olympics, we train together consistently uh, for 10 weeks, you know, every single session together. So last year was a very interesting, a different year for that. And I didn't, I didn't enjoy it, to be honest with you. Uh, I like training with Alistair because it, um, it pushes me on in training. When I turn up to, to the track, it's a cold night. I've got someone to, to follow, someone that I can push and race against. And it pushes me on rather than me turning up there, you're by myself. Um, People so often ask you, won't they, if it's a problem training with the basically your biggest rival and they see it as a negative. But I guess a lot of the time it can be fantastic because you know exactly what your biggest rival is doing. You know exactly where they are in terms of their fitness and you can use them, particularly in run sessions, I guess, as well. Yeah, you can, but um, it's also strange competing against Alistair you know, in training sessions. If he beats me on a Tuesday night in a track session, um, you know, if you're going to turn up to a race, he's going you know, to beat me there. I expect him to beat me there. So it's not like a normal, uh, you know, against Gomez, because I don't know what time Gomez runs in training. So when we turn up to a race on a, on a Saturday, you know, I have no idea. Maybe I can beat Gomez, maybe I can't. But with Alistair, I know every single time he does, you know, how fit he is. So it, it's, it's weird for us, you know, having that. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's, just, it's a strange situation. Good question. Okay. Hi, my name's Alex. Um, just picking up on that about the training together and the rivalry, there was a bit of speculation before the Olympics about um, you know, if you were involved in a sprint finish. You, you mentioned earlier living together very close. Was there a conversation? I'd be fascinated to know. Um, a, se and a second separate question would be um, when you're racing around Hyde Park and Madness the Olympics, do you ever have any moments of clarity where you pick people out in the in the uh, in the crowd or anything that amuses you or are you just too mm. focused on the intensity of the racing let's re should we answer that second one first because I think that's quite interesting in that you know it was an incredible atmosphere I'm yeah. sure some of you were there in High Park that day yeah, something triathlon, triathlon never seen before and you talked about mm. how you could spot say a Bingley Harriers vest mm. maybe someone you had a school friend you hadn't seen for 10 years yeah I had a few moments of clarity um, the first one was coming out to swim on the first lap of the bike and um, you're going all the way down the road, down towards Buckingham Palace. I'm thinking, wow, there's still crowds all the way out here. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, so that, you know, and realizing it was four or five deep. So that was pretty mad. And then other ones where I recognized uh, our running club, Bingley Harriers, had brought loads of people down. There was a whole section up on one of bits of the course that had loads of Bingley Harriers vests hung out on it. And I, was, I remember that and seeing, uh, and seeing a teacher 
that uh, taught me at school. And a bit further up the, co of the course, there was a guy I went to school with and knew, but you know, I hadn't seen him since I left school. And he was like hanging over the barrier, <laughs> yelling at me. And uh, just remember that. And that was actually towards the end of the race as well when I was starting to get really tired. So It's yeah. an incredible thing to experience in the Olympics, isn't it? I think when people talk about home Olympics, mm. That's one of the things that, that they, they maybe mean. You know, no other athlete would be going through that. Oh, yeah, it's amazing, yeah, because not only is there a crowd, there are massive crowds, and all right, you don't know, you know, there's half a million people, you don't know 490,900, you know, but there is a lot of people in there you do know. <laughs> we, we're, you know we're lucky that our, our running club sent two coaches, loads of people down, and uh, the university, Leeds University we went to, sent hundreds of people down, and they're all wearing green T-shirts, and our uncle, who's massively involved in triathlon, went. So there's, there's you know, loads of people there we know as well. And so it, it was an, an incredible event. And some of the stories of how the people got there as well are, are pretty good. Johnny, you were saying that actually it was, it was so noisy that there's only one part of the course where you, if you were talking and shouting to Alistair, there's only one part of the course where you could actually hear each other. Yeah, uh, in London, competing in London first was incredible. To have five people deep the whole way around was, was absolutely amazing. And like you say, there was only one bit of the course where we could hear, we could hear each other. And the rest of the way around, I remember at the first lap of the bike, we tried to talk to each other for, throughout the whole course, and it wasn't worthwhile. My ears were just buzzing from the crowd. It was incredible. And then there's this one section that lasted about five seconds where we could talk about things. And when I got my penalty, we talked about that. Um, there's a few swear words going on then as well um, yeah. about my penalty. But again, so that was weird because the whole way around, again, I knew that I couldn't talk to Alistair until we hit this section again, and then we try and talk, and, and again. So it's weird, like you say, picking people out of the crowd. I remember picking out a school teacher, and I remember my school teacher's voice uh, being recognized, because when, when you're at school, you get shouted at uh, for doing, I don't know, not being tidy or something, or being late. And I remember this games teacher, and just picking his voice out, and just being a weird moment of kind of, I'm back at school again. Because um, the whole Olympics, it w the crowd was so loud and so different to anything we experienced before that it was just incredible. Yeah, and that first, about the sprint finish, um, yeah, we never talked about it seriously. <laughs> we talked about it as a joke, like, you know, I was like, oh, Johnny, if I'm beating you and I wait for you, will you, will you sprint past me <laughs> at the end? Or, um, and Johnny was like, well, if I'm beating you, I'm not going to wait for you because you'll just do me anyway. <laughs> so... Had but you been told that you that you couldn't do the classic yeah, arm in arm? They would yeah. they would separate you we, on a photo finish. We got told finish. we couldn't do it at any World Series racing. We got <laughs> told we'd get separated on a photo finish and we'll get done for race fixing. <laughs> did, you, did you not consider just you know going for the handhold in the last minute, just just, just lunging to, to well, nick him? I kind of thought that I'd probably beat him, so I was going to lose out of that. <laughs> uh, but no, I think the reality of it was that if we were that close, we'd be sprinting headlong down there mm. and probably trying to trip each other up. <laughs> but yeah, it would, would never have occurred. <laughs> okay, next question. Hi, I'm Erin. I was wondering, what's the toughest triathlon you've ever done? Um, triathlons are funny. It's not only the course that makes them tough. I think the toughest, toughest course we've ever done uh, was we both did a triathlon called the Helvellyn Triathlon, the Lake Street, when we were really young. Johnny did it when he was about <laughs> 15 or something, and he shouldn't have done it. Um, and it takes like four hours, and you end up running up and down a mountain called Helvellyn. So that was a tough course. But actually, some of the toughest ones are when the races are really tough. Um, so it was a tough race. Like Stockholm this year that I raced in, that was a really tough race for me. Um, and there's been loads of other ones. So the race in London where I collapsed, that was a tough race. So it, it's funny what makes them tough sometimes. Johnny, your toughest race? And probably London last year here at the Olympics. When you uh, collapsed at the finish. When I collapsed at the finish line. Because one thing going to Olympics I wanted, I wanted to do is just try my hardest. I didn't want to cross that finish line knowing that I haven't given everything and then thinking later, you know, what if, 
what if I tried a bit harder? Maybe I'd have got bronze if I tried a bit harder because you know, I came fourth or something. I didn't want that. Um, so I was determined to give it everything in London and uh, yeah, I collapsed at the finish line afterwards. So that must have been pretty hard. So yeah, mm. yeah London was the hardest. Was there a point in that collapse where you, you found a doctor putting a thermometer in a slightly unusual place? <laughs> yeah, there was, yeah. <laughs> All I'll say was it wasn't under your tongue, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't in my tongue. No, it's quite long as well. Um, but um, I remember, yeah, the Olympic, finishing down the Olympic straight and it'd been incredible, you know, Olympic bronze medals, all, what I've always wanted. And then um, I collapsed um, afterwards and then I wanted the whole thing to be over. Um, I, I, just lying on this hospital bed, thinking this Olympic medal ceremony thing is a bit rubbish, you know. I, I should be on the podium now and enjoy myself and you're doing what, doing, what, you're doing what you see on TV with a flag around you, jumping them down, I don't know, dancing around. Instead, I'm on this hospital bed with a thermometer um, up somewhere. Um, and then the podium itself, I remember wanting to get down from the podium and not really enjoying it. So that was kind of a bit of a shame. So that was a very, very tough race. <laughs> okay, this chap here. Um, name's Brian. Um, you've, you're developing a bit of a reputation of getting a bit gobby on the bike leg and <laughs> encouraging others along. Who have you heard this one, Brian? <laughs> we've, ju we've just seen it. <laughs> I get, can, can you talk a little bit about what goes on tactically during the bike leg and have you had any abuse back again? Yeah, uh, it's foreign languages, maybe. Yeah, maybe from some foreign people. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> during the bike itself, we obviously want to make it a hard, pure race, and we like the tactics. Uh, we spend obviously a lot of time riding our bike, 20 hours a week. So when it comes to a race, we want to use that. And we know that our advantage is we can get out the swim first and then bike hard, then people can't catch us. You know, the weaker swimmers who might be the fastest runners in the world, but they can't catch us. So it, it suits our tactics. And we never, I still don't understand to this day when you've got someone who's not a fast runner, but was a good swimmer in that front bike pack, and they know they're, they're not going to come in the top 10 unless they get that bike pack working. And you know, we're the, you're some of the fastest runners anyway, um, so it's not always in our interest to do that, but we really want to do that because it's all about chance. And if there's, if there's only eight people in that front bike pack, then obviously your chance of winning is a lot higher. So we try and get people to work, and the only way to do that is to normally shout at people. <laughs> it, 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 it's as simple because you will... Get, if you just leave people there, they'll just sit on the back all day. But if you encourage people to work, then it, then it normally works some of the time. Some of the time it works, some of the time it doesn't. And there's ways of doing it as well. You can, be, you can shout to them you know, aggressive things, or you can just say, come on, it's in your interest. Just keep it going, work hard for one more lap, or you know, just come on, you can get a podium here, or you can get a top five here. Um, so there, there are ways of doing it. doesn't kind of shouting very often. <laughs> <laughs> Do you two think your, your characters change in the middle of a race? In terms of, in terms of, uh, I guess how aggressive you can be. I change completely. Yeah, um, I'm at home. I'm, I'm quiet. I'll never shout at anyone. But when I go to a race, something changes completely. Uh, it's quite scary sometimes, actually. But um, yeah, I, I change completely. I, like I say, I never ever shout at someone outside racing. But when I start racing, I'll get quite aggressive. And other people are completely different. People in races aren't, ag aren't aggressive at all. Uh, Alistair gets aggressive like me. Uh, Alistair, what's the worst thing you've ever said to someone? Leaving out these yeah, effing and blindings. Just lots of beeps. Lots of bleeps, beep, okay. beep, 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 beep. <laughs> And who's the most aggressive rider um, to you guys? Or is it because you two guys are generally driving that bike pack, then you get less chat back? Um, yeah, we don't get, tend to get a lot of chat back, too. Every so often. Um, yeah, it's difficult because we tend to, there doesn't tend to be a lot of English-speaking people anymore that are in those front groups. Um, Five or six years ago, there'd be lots of Australians and Kiwis, but there isn't so much anymore. So, so now it's all vamos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Linger. He and Gomez says nothing at all most of the time, and when he does, it sounds very kind of 
you know, friendly. Mm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay, next question. Hi, my name's Adrian. Firstly, congratulations on the book. I've read it in one sitting, really enjoyed it. Oh, um, thank you. It's not too short then, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing you talked about in there was the, um, the 2012 selection policy and how you had Stuart Hayes in a domestique role. Um, firstly, how, do you, how did that actually help you on the day? And secondly, do you think it will shape other countries' tactics come 2016 in Rio? Um, yeah, so the selection policy really was kind of, it's all about selecting the best team for the Olympics. Um, and obviously we, we really believe that the best team was having us two as medal chances in the domestique. Um, and then Stu was picked for that role. Um, and Stu is actually great for that role because obviously he can swim really well, bike really well, but he's also very, very tactically aware. And um, that was so, so important. Um, and the kind of the best way to describe it, even though it sounds a bit harsh, is it's kind of an insurance policy. You know, you, you might not use him, you say half the time, 50% of the time, it could, nothing could happen at all. Um, but there could be 25% of the time where he's absolutely crucial to the race and 25% of the time where maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Um, as it turned out, yeah, you know, it might have not been a crucial thing, but it was, a, it was an important factor. Um, so when we were away in the first kind of 10 kilometers of the bike, um, and we got pulled back. The, the minute we were caught there, that was a really dangerous position because, you know, if someone had attacked or, or a few other people had attacked and we had to chase every attack down then, um, you know, that, that would just end up with us wasting so much of our legs. And that's what, what we're actually worried about. You know, there was actually quite a lot of talk before the race that a few countries were going to get together and just attack Johnny and me one after the other after the other. Um, and in the end, it didn't happen because Stu sat on the front, kept the pace high enough so that no one really had the chance to attack. And if anyone did... He chased it down most of the time, and then one of us would, um, and that ended up us getting off the bike in a good position, um, ahead of a lot of a lot of the other runners behind us, um, and able to run fairly fresh. Okay, we've got time for two more questions. Hi, my name's Lucy, and I'm asking a question for my dad because um, oh. <laughs> he's not here. Um, <laughs> how did you celebrate the Olympic win and and third? Um, well, my uh, celebration was absolutely rubbish. I went home. <laughs> I was in the hotel. I was knackered. I went for burger and then I went straight to bed. I couldn't wait to go to bed, um, which I'm absolutely disappointed with because you hear all these great stories again after the Olympics and I went to bed. <laughs> Alistair, you struggled to get served in a pub, didn't you? Yeah, uh, it, was, it was a right letdown. Not let just because you looked really. 15. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went to, because um, after the Olympics, you like, go straight on a conveyor belt and you're doing this and that, and mostly because Johnny delayed us. And <laughs> so we got back from doing BBC and all that kind of thing. Um, straight in, had a shower, got dressed straight out, went to the first pub I could find, where it so happens most of my family and coaches and stuff were there, and walked in, and it was like one minute past 11, they wouldn't give me anything to drink. <laughs> so. <laughs> did you, did you try the, do you know what I've just done? I didn't, Line. but um, I've got a, a fantastic character of a neighbour, or he lives just across the road from my parents, and he was going, it's an outrage, and <laughs> he'd had quite a lot of drinks by this point, and <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to pour a pint for me, and all sorts, so... Um, yeah, that was it. <laughs> okay, our final question. Hi, um, my name's Helen. I just wondered what motivates you to kind of go out and train, like especially on really cold, horrible days. Like, how do you get out there? And it's uh, always a tough question to answer this because I'm never quite sure what does motivate me. Uh, routines, one of the things, I suppose. The fact that um, I do the same thing you know, week in, week out. So if I'm not going out training, it's just weird. Uh, but I, I do. I love the training. I do. Um, there are days, obviously, when it's freezing outside and it's raining and maybe there's a bit of football on TV and I'm like, I quite fancy watching the football. Uh, but, but I'm so used to getting on my bike, that's what I do. 
and it, it, it's easy for me to go out cycling. And if Alistair's around as well, and Alistair's training with me, then it's even easier because there's someone to go out with. Uh, he, he might turn up late, uh, but, <laughs> but at least there's someone to meet and go out for a ride. Uh, oh, thanks for that. He won't admit to that. No. <laughs> <laughs> and you, Alistair, how do you keep the motivation going? Um, I think very similar. You know, routine is kind of what you do. It's like you describe it as I get up and go swimming at seven o'clock. It's a bit like getting up and going to work. Um, it is literally just what you do day in, day out. Um, a lot of it I'm motivated by going to meet people. You know, we're lucky that we have quite a lot of friends that we can go ride and run with that we've known for years, you know, 10, 15 years now. And it's all we've done and all we've done together. So that's brilliant. Um, and also the place, the scenery, you know, generally really I'm motivated, inspired by the scenery we have at home, the places we can go. Um, and that's fantastic. The cafes we go to, the characters we meet, you know, that is definitely all part of it. Absolutely crucial. Um, and if all else fails, if Johnny's going out, my mum was going to go out as well. So. <laughs> well, sadly, that's all we've got time for. Thanks to you guys for coming. I hope you found that interesting. And let's uh, show our appreciation to Johnny and Alistair. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm.